Welcome back to Last Week in Medicine. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today we have a very special guest, Dr. James Fang. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Fang. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no, thanks for being here. I know you're, you're busy. So, so for our listeners that don't know you, Dr. Fang is the chief of the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine here at the University of Utah. Uh, he did his medical school at Duke and then internship residency and a chief resident year at Johns Hopkins. And then it is uh, cardiology and heart failure fellowships at Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School, where he uh, then stayed on his faculty. And uh, he worked there until 2006 and then was recruited to Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, uh, where he held multiple leadership roles before then coming here to the University of Utah in 2013 to serve as our chief of cardiovascular medicine. Uh, Dr. Fang is a highly respected clinician, teacher, mentor, and researcher, and was one of my favorite attendings when I was a resident on the heart failure service. He was always full of clinical pearls and, and practical wisdom for managing complex heart failure patients. And he's been serving on the ACC AHA Heart Failure Guidelines Committee. Uh, and so I asked him to join me today to talk about the new guidelines that were published in April. And uh, I guess these, these guidelines replace the 2013 guidelines and the 2017 update. Did I miss anything, Dr. Fang? No, Stephen. Um, and thank you, by the way, for that very generous introduction. <laughs> no problem. So what, what do you think are the most uh, significant or important changes made in these guidelines compared to what, what our last update showed? Yeah, well, uh, thank you uh, for the question. So the uh, guidelines do, I should uh, note, uh, have a top 10 uh, takeaways. Um, if you've had a chance to peruse the document, the document in its entirety numbers uh, a couple of hundred pages, so we don't expect anybody to read it. And there is an executive summary. But there are a, a top 10 uh, features that we did want to note. Uh, of note of those top 10s, you know, I'll tell you my personal uh, probably four or five takeaways. Uh, one is the primacy of angiotensin receptor nephrolysin inhibitors. There really is only one on the market, Secute Patrol Valsartan, also goes by the moniker Entresto. And in our guidelines, uh, is a class one ind uh, indication to use actually an RNA for patients with um, HEF-REF in particular. Mm -hmm. Although we also recognize in the guidelines that the effectiveness of Secupitravalsartan in this class of medication extends to patients with a mid-range ejection fraction, 40 to 50, as well as a cohort of HEF-PEF patients perhaps in the range of ejection fractions of 50 to 55. Mm. Uh, number two is that we finally have provided some recommendations for the care of HEF-PEF. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, from prior guideline uh, committee statements, we've uh, not had specific, uh, uh, very specific treatments for HEF-PEF short of treat the comorbidities. Right. The prior approach in the guidelines was to treat the hypertension, treat the obesity, treat the uh, diabetes, the CKD, those are all still true. Mm -hmm. um, but because of some landmark trials, we now have elevated uh, the use of um, SGLT2 inhibitors on the basis of the Emperor Preserve trial. Um, MRAs, uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists such as spironolactone or plarinone. And of course, now phenarinone is on the market. 
um, although we of course don't call up drugs specifically, um, <clears throat> uh, as well as um, the use of uh, secubitrobalsartan. So um, I, I should also note that of our top 10, probably four to five of our top 10 referred to this category of uh, um, preserved or mid-range ejection fraction. Mm -hmm. um, because I think we have uh, new data to support that. And then I think a very important feature that we have not had in the guidelines previously are value statements. Mm -hmm. We all struggle with cost. Um, in fact, uh, I was just in clinic um, in which a patient of mine who I had on Dapagliflozin um, told me he had stopped it because it was $140 a month and he simply couldn't afford it despite the guideline recommendations uh, and the power of the clinical trials. Mm -hmm. And so we specifically uh, put value statements under the leadership of uh, Paul Heidenreich, one of the co-chairs, uh, that really call out the value of uh, some of these interventions. Um, so for example, you know, uh, ACE inhibitors and ARBs and beta blockers are high value interventions. Uh, heart transplant is not <laughs> because it's so expensive. Um, Tefamidus, which is a new treatment for amyloidosis, is also not a high value, um, although effective because it currently costs two hundred and fifty to $300,000 a year for treatment. So uh, I do think that's a particularly important feature um, of this new guideline. And then finally, uh, you alluded to this a little bit, was... Um, the phenotyping of heart failure by ejection fraction. Um, increasingly, heart failure experts um, want to leave behind the ejection fraction. Um, ejection fraction in some people's minds is really just a biomarker uh, that allows you to phenotype because ejection fraction, like natriuretic peptides, goes up and down. Uh -huh. And so these specific categories have been called out in the guidelines. Um, these cutoffs... Um, are somewhat controversial, but again, by consensus, uh, there are now arguably four categories. Um, there is a heart failure with reduced ejection fraction defined by an EF of less than 40%. Heart failure with mid-range or mildly reduced, actually the moniker has been changed. We used to call it uh, mid-range, now we call it mildly reduced, really to be more patient-friendly. Same, same acronym though, so hopefully, <laughs> yeah. Correct. So that's an ejection fraction of 40 uh, to 49% or 41 to 49, I can't recall. 40 mm -hmm. to 50, let's just call it. Yeah. And then ejection fractions of greater than 50% being FPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The last category that uh, we called out, which was something alluded to in other previous guideline statements, is the notion of heart failure with improved ejection fraction. Um, and that's really an acknowledgement and a call out that it is the trajectory of ejection fraction that matters. Mm -hmm. We know, for example, that perhaps up to a third or more of patients with HEFPEF will have a decline in ejection fraction over five years. We also know that perhaps a quarter to a third of patients with um, HEFREF will have an improvement of ejection fraction into the HEFPEF range. Mm -hmm. So the definition, by the way, of heart failure with improved ejection fraction is an ejection fraction that starts off at less than 40, that goes to above 40, and um, more precisely, 
has an absolute change of uh, 10 absolute percentage points. So for example, going from 39% to 41, <laughs> it's hard to argue that's a real improvement yeah. fraction. Yeah. But going from 35 to 45, mm-hmm. I think would a real percentage change. So those are just some of the, my overall impressions. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Um, so this, this heart failure with improved EF kind of replaces what I've seen people using as heart failure recovered EF, which I think, you know, this new, this new name or definition seems to capture what's going on a little better since it's not necessarily a static thing. You know, there's always the chance that that EF will drop again, if not, you know, appropriately managed or, if you know, risk factors got worse. So it seems to be kind of more pointing towards the direction that things are going. So currently improved, but you know, one, one thing I noticed in the guidelines is we definitely recommend that those patients stay on the, the goal-directed medical therapy, or I guess what, what is GDMT? Is it guideline? Directed GD- medical therapy. Yeah. Guideline directed medical therapy. Um, the other, yeah. before I forget too, I would be, uh, uh, I would be amiss to not also really call out another, another very important issue and uh, perhaps I should have started with this. And this is the acknowledgement that all patients with FREF ejection fractions less than 40% really should be on what we call the four cornerstones or the four pillars uh-huh. of heart failure class medications, um, even if you can't get to optimal dosing. So, and there's a big controversy right now. And how do you get patients on these four drugs? Do you do it sequentially? Mm-hmm. But all at once, do you do half of them at once and the other half later? How do you titrate? There are all kinds of things that are issues that clinicians struggle with that uh, we don't have any uh, guidance from research yet to know yeah. how to get these patients on to these four drugs. Yeah, I did notice that the guidelines don't explicitly <laughs> say how to get people on GDMT, but they recommend that, yeah, those four classes of medications and something applicable to me as a hospitalist, you know, there's a section about patients with decompensated heart failure and recommending that we, we try to keep them on GDMT. And if they're not already on it, try to get them on it before they leave the hospital. Um, that, you know, that's the, a good opportunity to start people on this path. And I know that's something we've been working on. Um, a lot of my fellow hospitalists, especially with the SGL2 inhibitors, since those ones seem to be pretty well tolerated you don't have a lot of hemodynamic issues necessarily. So we've been trying to get people on those more frequently. Um, but sometimes it just comes down to prior authorizations and costs and all of those things. Easy to start in the hospital, but hard to continue once they leave. So, yeah. well, I appreciate that perspective. That's really important. As you know, the transition from outpatient to inpatient and inpatient to outpatient, right, are, are critical and vulnerable periods for patients. And to be fair, most healthcare systems, including ours, don't manage them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. Those are those are vulnerable transitions. Um, I was going to ask you if there was really any significant changes in the terminology for stages. You know, it, we, it looks like we've kept the A, B, C, D, but whether the the you know the definitions of those are basically the same, or if you feel like those are different. Well, again, to improve um, both provider and patient uh, comfort with these things, we've we've really tried to read. Um, we've uh, let's say um, uh, uh, made the monikers a little bit more digestible, um, rather than just calling them stages. They're really patients who are at risk than those stage A. Than that, those are the patients who arguably, you know, have pre 
uh, heart failure syndromes. And then of course, stage C are those patients with the clinical diagnosis of heart failure and patients with stage D are those patients with advanced heart failure, which is essentially defined by patients who are not responding uh, to a medical device and surgical intervention. And the, the stage B, I guess, seemed to me like the thing that maybe was helpful for me to reframe how I thought about, you know, these patients that have structural heart disease, maybe their EF is already low, but they, you know, are asymptomatic or, you know, haven't had, you know, severe symptoms, calling them pre-heart failure, you know, instead of, I think what we used to maybe call them is asymptomatic heart failure, but kind of really looking at these as patients that are really important to get on treatment early so that you can prevent them from progressing to kind of overt symptomatic heart failure. And it looked like there were, there, you know, there were actual guidelines for those patients, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, as far as getting them on those, those four classes of medication right away, um, even if they're not symptomatic. Is that accurate? That is accurate. So um, <clears throat> the most uh, common situation we see probably are, you know, uh, patients who do have uh, structural heart disease, but no symptoms. These are patients with aortic stenosis, mitral regurgitation, left ventricular hypertrophy, left atrial enlargement, or even asymptomatic declines in ejection fraction. And uh, the cornerstone of the management of these patients really is surveillance. Um, and um, in select groups that treatment. So for example, um, in patients with asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction, uh, the use of an ACE inhibitor has been known for a couple of decades, actually more than a couple, three decades from the SALT trials, um, which had an arm simply targeted at those kind of patients that there would be benefit. Beta blockers likewise. But in patients, for example, with asymptomatic um, mitral regurgitation or um, aortic stenosis, other than treatment of comorbidities, uh, you know, and lifestyle recommendations, there are no targeted therapies to prevent the progression. But it was a really important call out of the new guidelines because we are continually emphasizing the prevention of this trouble, right? Mm -hmm. as, as you know, you primarily see patients that probably um, are more further along than they should be. And then had we intervened or been more aggressive early on, perhaps uh -huh. prevented some of this morbidity. And, and I might've misspoken too. When I said, we get them on those four classes, I guess I didn't see a recommendation for getting asymptomatic or pre-heart failure patients on SGL2 inhibitors. Is that correct? correct? We we're not moving on them yet for that drug class, but we do like ACE inhibitors or ARBs if they can't tolerate the ACE and beta blockers, those are still appropriate therapies for those patients. Correct. Although there is a caveat to your comment, you know, don't forget that the cardiovascular outcome trials uh, that uh, were used to get sodium glucose cotransporter type 2 inhibitors approved were prevention trials. Mm -hmm. You'll recall that the FDA had mandated the need uh, for any new diabetic agent to show that um, it did not worsen um, cardiovascular outcomes, which, as you know, had been a complication of TCDs and other mm -hmm. drugs. And so this mandate led to these huge series of studies. Emporeg um, is perhaps the one you know best. Um, but these were drugs um, that were tested in patients, again, with diabetes, 
um, with a, you know, a primary outcome being cardiovascular outcomes. Mm-hmm. And across the board, um, all of these drugs um, prevented, prevented uh, heart failure, mm-hmm. uh, heart failure hospitalizations. So in patients with diabetes, yeah, who you could argue have LVH or something else going on in their echo, even the lack of symptoms, this would be an, an indicated therapy. Now, we don't have that data for patients without diabetes, uh-huh. but uh, in patients with diabetes, um, arguably a stage B pre-heart failure situation, um, that would be a cohort for which we have randomized prospective clinical trial data that these drugs should be used. That's great. Um, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, how to get people on GDMT, what sequence, um, do you kind of have a, a style that you like to do on your clinic patients or is that too yeah. controversial? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's a very practical question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The guideline document says get them on all four. Right. <laughs> the obvious retort is, well, how the hell do you do that? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you just can't write four prescriptions that say, I'll see you in a couple of months, right? That, that, right. That, that disingenuous. Well, a couple of caveats. Um, so it all depends. So, you know, heart failure at the end of the day is not just an ejection fraction diagnosis, right? It's uh, the reason we love in cardiology is because it's a hemodynamic diagnosis. So when you're approaching a patient with heart failure, in addition to wanting to know what the ejection fraction is, which sometimes you don't know, right? Um, you have to assess the two axes of congestion and perfusion. And that helps guide therapy. So for example, if you were to see a patient who was clearly wet, pedal edema, high neck veins, orthopnic, and who was cold, you know, with the blood pressure of 100, 110, 120, you wouldn't start with metoprolol. Right. You would start with arguably guideline secret patrol valsartan. And if you couldn't get that for cost, it would start with an ARB or an ACE inhibitor, or even hydralazine isodil. Um, two, because they are congested, it would be very reasonable to start an SGLT2 inhibitor right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Again, because of its naturetic effect and an MRA. And there's clinical trial evidence to support this approach. So MRAs were tested spironolactone in the clinical trial Athena, which the University of Utah participated in, in which patients uh, were titrated to 100 milligrams of spironolactone during a hospitalization for heart failure. Very safe, by the way. No hyperkalemia, no renal dysfunction was seen versus placebo, by the way. Mm-hmm. It was less hypokalemia, of course. Unfortunately, it did not meet its primary endpoint, which was lowering BNP. That was published in JAMA a number of years ago. Okay. And then SGLT2 inhibitors, this issue of starting them in the hospital was tested in the Soloist trial. It's with a SGLT2 inhibitor called sodicliflozin, which is actually a mixed sodium glucose co-transporter type 2 inhibitor. It's with type 1 and type 2. Hmm. But this was started in the hospital or soon thereafter. Um, and in the DAPA-HF trial, there were also patients who were started um, at the tail end or right after discharge. So we have a strong clinical trial basis of evidence to support the use of these meds uh, in the hospital, again, on top of diuretics, et cetera. Sure. Um, in a patient that I would see in the office though, who frankly looked 
for example, um, uh, warm and dry, mm -hmm. had low ejection fraction, and had plenty of blood pressure to work with, um, I would um, probably be more aggressive in terms of what I would start. If they were hypertensive, for example, you might want to start with a beta blocker and or um, uh, uh, an Arnie. Mm -hmm. And then over time, it's very important. The other thing that's also noted in the guidelines is that frequent regular surveillance is critical. We see this a lot in outpatient practices. Patients referred to us who have been started on one or two drugs and then the follow-up appointments in six months. Yeah. I mean, it's clear these patients need to be seen, if not weekly, every other week. So titration and surveillance of symptoms and laboratories can be achieved. Oh, that's super helpful, especially thinking about the, you know, the cold and wet patients versus the warm and dry um, and, you know, in the hospital, we're going to see a lot more of the wet ones. Um, so that, that is helpful to think about it that way. Um, I guess if cost was a big issue, which it is for a lot of patients, we've already talked about that. And, and a patient had to choose between Entresto or an SGL2 inhibitor, what would you get? What would you do in that scenario? <laughs> yeah, a very good question. Um, you know, arguably they're both high value um, uh, interventions, uh, but at some point it's a practical issue of cost. Um, well, one of the issues that comes to mind is tolerability. So at the end of the day, some glucose transporters are uh, very well tolerated and their benefits are independent of background RAS antagonism. So there's a benefit to them, whether you're on an ACE inhibitor, ARB, or a, a sucubitrol valsartan, although we favor sucubitrol valsartan. Um, so there, as you know, very little surveillance to be done, right? There's mm -hmm. Dr. Brownwald was recently quoted as calling this class of drug, the statin of heart failure, mm -hmm. because as you know, statins really are incredibly well tolerated and there's nobody with coronary disease that shouldn't be on them. Uh, and they can be started really with very little, right? Surveillance. Yeah, that's a great quote. <laughs> Sodium glucose co-transporter type 2 inhibitors are going to fall into that same category. As you know from the clinical trials, they're very well tolerated. It um, almost causes very little morbidity. There are some things to be concerned about. As you know, there's need to be surveillance for hypoglycemia, not because the drug produces hypoglycemia because it prevents reabsorption of glucose, which rarely leads to hypoglycemia, but because of its hypoglycemic effects exacerbates the background diabetic therapy. So mm. sometimes you need to think about cutting back your insulin or your metformin or whatever. Sure. Number two, because it's a natriuretic agent, it's very common to have to back off the diuretic. So you may have to concomitantly cut uh, a standing diuretic dose in half. The issues of euglycemic ketoacidosis, Fournier's gangrene, UTIs, genital infections, these are all important issues. But thankfully, with respect to Fournier's gangrene and euglycemic ketoacidosis, extremely rare. Mm -hmm. With respect to GU infections, those are definitely an issue, both urinary tract and perineal infections. And so patients who've had recurrent trouble with this kind of thing, um, it, it's something that you need to have shared decision-making um, and bring your clinical judgment to the table, whether or not it's, it's worth it. So that's a really long-winded way to 
to get to your simple question, what would I go for first? Cost <laughs> is an issue. I would go with a sodium glucose co-transporter, type two inhibitor, and forego the ARNI um, if you can get on the uh, patient on an ACE inhibitor ARB. Yeah. Um, but really, an attempt should be made really strongly to involve your clinical pharmacist to get them on both. Yeah. Just to give you an idea, Stephen, the Paradigm trial, which established the primacy of Sucupitravalsartan over an ACE inhibitor, was published in 2014. Yeah, eight years ago. Eight <laughs> years ago. Yeah. If you look at clinical trials, which you can argue is the best care in America, right? Less than 10 to 20% of patients are on ARNIs. Yeah. Enrolled in these trials. In fact, in the last trial, um, Emperor reduced only 20% of patients in that trial were on an ARNI. And if you go to real world registries, it's even less. It's just, yeah. it's exactly, it's embarrassing. Um, this drug, lowers um, mortality, cardiovascular death, hospitalizations, and it lowers everything on top of background medical therapy by a robust 20%. Uh, and uh, its biggest caveat is hypotension. Mm-hmm. And that, does, that should be recognized in the paradigm trial that was a run-in. We lost about 10 to 20% of patients um, in the trial, I mean, lost meaning they could not right. Right. because they just got too hypotensive during the run. Yeah, no, that that's it. I, you got to think there's probably like an inflection point of cost where you could see if the cost got low enough, you know, we could get a lot more people on it. And I know that when it first came out, I was like, wow, this is great. Like we haven't had a new drug that improves mortality and heart failure in a long time. And so every time we looked at getting a patient started on it, we, we just, it was just too expensive for them. And so I guess I'm sure, I don't know what, which company made that drug, but you know, Novartis. they're probably not going to give up that patent easily, but maybe once it goes generic, there will be a, you know, a huge well, group there's of no patients that, that start it. Yeah. You know, to be fair, Stephen, there's no doubt cost comes into play, but it's also provider uh, inertia. inertia. Yeah. And the reason I can say that is we looked at this at the VA. At the VA, the meds are free. Yeah. At the VA, the meds are free. And Entresto is yeah. a part of their formulary. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is sobering at the VA for people who have the indication and no obvious contraindications that you can glean from the medical record. The minority of patients that should be on it are on it. Yeah, no, that is sobering. And yeah, definitely it's not just cost. A lot of it is provider uptake and inertia. So no, it's, it's a good, good reminder that we need to keep pushing for that drug. Um, I should let you go. I just want to ask you, you know, one more question. Cause this is like, maybe, maybe this is a can of worms, but you know, you alluded to the, the heart failure with mildly reduced EF and the heart failure with preserved EF and how we have new guideline recommendations for these other classes of drugs. Um, and in many cases, they're class 2B or kind of weaker recommendations. So I guess for me, it's like, how do I pick which of these HEF-PEF and HEF-MREF patients should I actually pursue getting them on these meds? Or is it best that I get them plugged in with a heart failure specialist to make those decisions? Because it's easy to 
you know, treat their hypertension, get them on a diuretic if they need to. And in, you know, with, with the new data on SGL2 inhibitors, definitely get them on those. That's a stronger recommendation, but for these other drugs, like RNAs, MRAs, beta blockers, how do you pick the patients that'll benefit from those? It's a great question. So to take HEFPEF first. So the big change in HEFPEF really has been to appreciate the heterogeneity of the disease. It is not a homogeneous grab bag of uh, patients with heart failure with just ejection fractions greater than 50%. And some people have advocated that we need to better phenotype HEFPEF um, into categories and then use more goal-directed medical therapy to address the specific phenotypes. And in fact, another guideline call-out in HEFPEF is amyloid. So 10% of patients with HEFPEF, particularly men with very high BNPs and modest elevations of troponin, should be screened um, because this is a diagnosis you do not want to miss. And when it when it composes 10% of something, that's that's important to recognize. And in the old days, we were a bit nihilistic because there was no treatment. And there mm-hmm. is treatment. And in fact, the University of Utah is one of the country's um, leading amyloid centers. So very important to, to note. Um, so, but to get to your question, I always uh, consider the use of a sodium glucose co-transporter tape tube inhibitor and an MRA. And because spironolactone or end up learning, but spironolactone in particular is really cheap. Mm-hmm. And it's also a very effective um, blood pressure medication, particularly elderly. Yeah. So I always think about that for those two. With respect to sodium glucose, with, with I'm sorry, with respect to secubage of Alsartan, the data there is a little messy. Um, the very famous now trial called Paragon HF, again, published in the New England Journal, which randomized half patients to this Arnie versus placebo. Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry, not placebo. It was randomized actually to an active treatment. It was actually randomized against Valsartan. Mm. Failed to meet its endpoint with a p-value of 0.06. Oh, actually, it was actually point, <laughs> it was actually 0.056, I think, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it just barely met its endpoint. Um, and there's been a lot of debate about this. Um, it turns out there was a there was some heterogeneity. So when you looked at um, pre-specified subgroups, there was an interaction um, significance with two specific subtypes patients with ejection fractions less than the mean, which is 57%, and women. So if you have a half-puff patient um, and who's particularly a woman with injection fraction, let's say 50, 55%, um, Valsartan um, would be a thought. But the MRAs and the sodium glucose quotient disorder inhibitors because of arguably because of cost effectiveness and their uniform benefit across ejection fractions, I think I would try to reach for first. Oh, that's very helpful. Thanks. Um, well, um, I think, yeah, I think that's all the questions I had for you. I don't know if you had any other parting words about heart failure guidelines before I let you go. <laughs> well, it's, it's really, um, Number one, a thank you to you for inviting me and really a thank you to the guideline committee. It was a, uh, it was a rich experience, incredibly dedicated people. Um, a, a call out to the chairs, Beacon Boskirk and Paul Heidenreich, uh, who are wonderful chairs and, and led a very complex document uh, to the finish line. So, um, and I urge you to reach out to us if there are questions. Um, you should, uh, 
you should not have to struggle uh, through this morass and times of information. Oh, we're we're uh, fortunate to have so much data out there now for for a lot of these conditions. So, but it is yeah, it can be challenging to kind of navigate through it. But thank you so much for for your help and um, and for joining us today. Yeah, anytime. Thank you again. Yep. We'll see you. Ciao.